So I became that young, prominent leader that had tunnel vision to make the club the best that it could be. And um, unfortunately, back in, in them days, in the 80s and 90s, we were fighting with another motorcycle club, another dominant motorcycle club. And um, that war <clears throat> took a real escalating turn in the 90s with shootings and bombings and everything you see in gangland. Rise up a warrior, my brothers. Welcome back to the Man of War. My name is Rafa Kandi, and of course, as always, I am a man on a mission here to transform you into a modern day warrior. Now, listen, I want to say welcome back to all the listeners. So I want to say I apologize to start off with because we have probably missed four or five uh, episodes over the last couple of weeks. But listen, the bottom line is this. All right, we are moving into a larger location, a beautiful location here. And as I record this right now, I'm looking outside the windows on the second floor, and I'm saying, fuck, man, you know, this is a great feeling, uh, especially where we started from uh, basically inside my house uh, just not even a couple of years ago, about a year and six months ago. But with that said, I'm going to tell you we are back stronger than ever, bringing you two episodes here coming up uh, We're going to bring you one on Friday, also our Warrior Chronicles, and we have some badass guests in the pipeline here. I've recorded some great podcasts, and one of the things that I want to do this year is I want to do something a little bit different. I want to go outside the box. I mean, if you look at iTunes and you look at a lot of these podcasters, and and, you know, obviously, I'm not, I'm not, I want every podcaster to be successful out there, but. There's a bunch of fucking copycats that just snipe every person that you bring on. And and I have many guests that have told me, hey, man, second that you had me on, I had this guy and that guy. And look, I don't give a shit. The bottom line is that I don't want to bring you something that you've heard over and over again. My goal is to bring you warriors that walk on that warrior's path, regardless where they come from. And that is going to be my goal this year. I'm going to seek these guys out. And I'm going to bring them to your plate here so you could have some great information served and badass content and not the same bullshit that's just going around um, all over the place in the podcast world. Anyways, April 10th through the 14th, the Man of War Crucible. There are still some openings. We are starting phase three interviews. We have selected 11 men as of this recording out of 76, 77 men uh, as of last night. We have some more interviews um, in the pipeline tonight. Now listen, real simple. This is going to be a revolutionary camp, an experience that if you're looking to better yourself and start truly living a life, dominating your life, you cannot afford to miss this. All right, we have a tremendous cadre of instructors Look, I'm not even going to say that much about it. Do me a favor. Go to Wardev Academy. That's W-A-R-D-E-V Academy.com forward slash crucible and put in your application. Phase three interviews are starting next week. Um, I believe at this point uh, we're only looking for eight men um, from this point on. So probably I would say by the end of February we're going to be locked down and then we'll start applications for the August evolution of the um, crucible. So this is what I want to encourage you to do. Look, we bring you this information, this content free of charge, and it's a bitch to do. Okay. I love doing it, but putting it together so you can hear it sweetly in your ears, it's a bitch. Okay. And it takes time and it takes energy. And what I'm asking from you is to give us an opportunity here to continue Okay, ranking high on these iTunes charts. So please run over there, give us a review, and give us a nice five-star review so we can continue trending high on these iTunes charts. Also, on Instagram, I'm at Man of War with two R's. Also, my co-host on the Warrior Chronicles, Kevo, is at Modern Age Warrior on Instagram. Now, listen, today's show is fucking powerful. All right, this guy. Mel Chanty, uh, I met up with him in Delray Beach, and uh, I got to tell you, all right, this guy is a legit dude. He is uh, squared away. Um, he's gone through a lot in his life. He was uh, the youngest leader of the Chicago Hells Angels segment, and as you know, the Hells Angels were the most violent uh, motorcycle gang uh, back in the 
um, 80s and 90s that this country ever saw. And his story is very powerful. How he came out of the darkness and into the light. This guy's a true warrior in my book. You're going to want to whip out your pen and paper and really listen to this because there's so many lessons from this uh, podcast. Certainly uh, one of the better and deeper ones that I've uh, ever recorded. All right, stand by. Mel Chanty, welcome to the Man of War podcast, brother. It is an absolute honor to have you on. Brother, thank you for having me. And um, it's been a little time in the making since we were trying to coordinate and get this together for the better part of last year on our crazy schedules now. No doubt, no doubt. But guess what? We are face-to-face here, and this is going to be an unbelievable podcast. We're going to dive into your mindset, your spirit, and, of course, that backstory. And for you listeners, I want you to whip out that pen and paper because you got to take notes. His story is phenomenal, and his message is very, very powerful. Mel, what I want you to do here for our audience, just you know, give us a little bit of a glimpse of who you are and just give us you know, where you come from. Yeah, so and he was born and raised in Chicago, um currently 49 years old heading on 50 this february here and um so all th- all through the, the 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 middle to late 80s and all through the 90s i was the uh leader of the hell's angels in chicago so that's kind of where my story started because uh i have a few different stents in in, in prison I, sp- I spent four years in a state prison followed by 18 months in a federal prison came home in 2000 and then um in 2004 the government uh, hit me with the racketeering charge with the RICO law. So, um, um, going back here, I was, uh, uh, when I, when I went to prison and I came home in 2000, I was on something that the, that the government calls a non-association. And, uh, that's where you can't, um, see or talk to any other members. If you, you know, run into them outside, I, I would have to leave the establishment we were in. So, in that in that four years time, um, it, it really gave me an insight to look at how I was living life and the things that I was doing and, you know, and, and putting no blame on the organization at all. It was me as an individual that was living the, the craze, the more craziness of the lifestyle. So that gave me a little bit of time outside of, uh, I, I always say the old analogy is, you know, you're so deep in the forest, you can't see the trees. And that's how I was in the club, you know, being the president at 24 years old, you know, as a young man and um, <clears throat> with all the obligations and the, you know, the power that comes with it. So <clears throat> when I got out and I, I was able to see like, you know, there was much more to life for me. I came from a very good family, um, strong, strong Catholic ties. My mother's, you know, all Italian and, and um, very Catholic. My dad uh, passed away, who was, who was German and Irish, very strict. My sister's Catholic school. So I was the young kid that right, right. took the turn and met one of the bikers when I was younger and um, the same, you know, he was the same guy that introduced me to, to lifting weights and bodybuilding, who was also a member of the, of the club of the Hells Angels. So that's how I got my start in there. And, um, you know, at 19 years old, when you're getting into something like that and, you know, uh, um, in that, in that lifestyle and stuff, it just consumed me. And, uh, you know, kind of like I have a addictive personality. So everything I do, I want to do the best Raf. you know, like, you know, whatever it is, but now with my businesses now, I'm, I'm consumed with them. And that's how I was with the, with the motorcycle club. So I became that young, prominent leader that had tunnel vision to make the club the best that it could be. And um, unfortunately, back in, in them days, in the 80s and 90s, we were fighting with another motorcycle club, another dominant motorcycle club. And um, that war <clears throat> took a real escalating turn in the 90s with shootings and bombings and everything you see in gangland for the hell's angels versus the outlaws you know you see the gangland stories and stuff so um and i was the poster child for it all you know i was the 24 year old leader 290 pounds bodybuilding um that that was my main focus i mean i love to train and bodybuild and i did it every single day even running the motorcycle club i was traveling i made sure i found a gym i trained didn't do any drugs, didn't, you know, drank some, drank some booze here and there, but it wasn't a heavy drinker because I didn't want nothing to interfere with my bodybuilding stuff, you know? So I, I kind of tell people it's like living two lifestyles. I lived that one percenter lifestyle, so to say, but I also lived the lifestyle of a pro bodybuilder where I was eating every couple hours and training. And it's so, so weird to say my mind was right, not spiritually right. I didn't, you know, I knew the Lord, but I, I, I was, you know, the, definitely a hypocrite, you know, um, being Catholic and stuff and, and raised in, in catechism and CCD, 
I used to ask the Lord forgiveness for, for every night for the things that I did, but I'd get right back up the next morning and go do them again. So I was the biggest hypocrite out there when it came to my relationship with the Lord. So going into <clears throat> um, when I got indicted under the racketeering law in, in 2004, um, I was facing a big, big stretch. I mean, if I went to trial, if I was a knucklehead and went to trial and, and, and fought the government, 26 years on a mandatory minimum at 85%. And there was four of us in there. And when they first grabbed me in 04, I, like I said, I was, I was you know, four years away from the club, running some nightclubs. I invested with a friend of mine. We had a big nightclub in Chicago. So I was really out of the one percenter lifestyle. So when the government indicted me, <clears throat> I wasn't part of that organization anymore, but I still had <clears throat> a bad mental attitude with the government. Like, oh, you're going to come at you guys keep coming after me keep coming after me not really realizing that you know listen to this i'm paying my penance for the crimes that i committed and this was my cleansing this was my second chance as i became my my moniker of, of i started a gym and clothing line at that but i wouldn't know it until months later so when i first got locked up and with the other three co-defendants we were all gun ho you know screw the government we're going to trial forget these guys we didn't want to hear nothing and you know it wasn't until I was laying on that eight, cold 8 by 12 Raf, and uh, they had me in segregation by myself, you know, trying to break me down. <clears throat> I was on that floor in, in, in a federal holding facility. It was probably about four or five months into the, to, to the indictment that we were there. No bonds, <clears throat> so none of us were going anywhere. And uh, that's, when I, that's when I really felt the presence of Jesus come to me. Like I knew him, and I was praying, but the prayers were just repetitive. But that's when I felt him. And I just said to him, Lord, take the wheel of this car because I'm not doing a good job. I'm crashing it every time I drive. Guide me through this. Your will. I'm here. I want to be loyal. I don't want to be a hypocrite. So here I am. And um, <clears throat> it, it's like most people will tell you when they feel that presence in that day, it was like overwhelming to me. I'll never forget it. And um, from that day on, I mean, things didn't get great because of that. You know, I, I, people think like, okay, I'm going to give my heart up to the Lord and I'm going to get out of this 28-year prison sentence. I'm going to go home. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. But even though it was a roller coaster, I stayed faithful and I stayed in prayer and things weren't going good. And, you know, sitting down with the government to, to talk about if we're going to plead guilty. And it, it was a, a lot of... Um, Meetings where I told my attorney, get, get me out of get me back to my cell, because I was in custody. We sat down with the U.S. attorneys and the federal agents, and the talks wouldn't go good. And, you know, they wanted me to run around the country and, you know, hit, up, hit trials and do all that. And I wasn't willing to do all that. So, you know, it was a lot of ups and downs. But um, I stayed in prayer, and I just kept saying, Lord, this is your cleansing. And, and he, he, he like put it in my mind, like, you know, when you, when you have a child and, and he's young and, you, you know, you smack his hand and you put him in the corner and you tell him to take a timeout for five minutes. Well, this was my timeout, you know. Right, right. And um, it just happened to be a nine-year sentence. But you know what? I'm blessed for it. And it really was like my cleansing that I call it, my second chance. It was getting everything else out. You know, I was away from the biker lifestyle. I, I, I wasn't selling the drugs and stuff, and that was all on me. I wasn't selling the drugs through the through the club. That was 100% Mel Chancy doing it. Um, the womenizing. I, I was through with the biker lifestyle, but I wasn't done with all the women, and I wasn't done with money being a, 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 an object, an idol to me. You know, I was making a lot of money as as through through my Hell's Angel days with the drugs and guns and stuff like that, 24-year-old kid, and some months I'm making $20,000 a month. So, you know, I had the houses and the cars. I was bit by it all, you know. people. I tell people it's like um, sending your little son through Toys R Us and telling him, son, everything's free today, just run, and filling up his cart with everything. That's how I was conquering the world, you know. So, so, so what I want you to do here is I want you to take us back, okay, just to a, to a, a day, you know, being a Hells Angels leader, Take us back to like an average day or, or, or something that you lived your life in that. So I, what I want to do here is I want to compare, you know, where you, the darkness that you have been and now where you are today. Uh, and I want to yeah. make a point here to show that, you know, it can be done. 
I mean, you can come out of that darkness of night and be able to start walking and start seeing that daylight. So for a lot of you out there that are <clears throat> struggling through this, I mean, listen to this message. So I want you to take us back to an ugly day in, you know, being a leader out there of, of a very violent, considered one of the most violent <clears throat> gangs in America. Yeah. Okay. So any typical day for me was, especially in the height of the, the war that was going on in the 90s, you know, the early part of the 90s. Um, you know, I, I was always an early riser, no matter what. I don't care if I was out till six in the morning, I'd sleep a couple hours, get up, I ate. Always trained first for the day. I'd always get into the gym by 11, 12 o'clock, you know, get my training done. So that was done. And then my day consisted of whatever, whatever came with the Hells Angels. But I was a night guy. I was, I was, we were always going out, you know, being at that young age and having multiple, multiple girlfriends and I had four different homes with a girl in each home, and they all knew about each other. Wow. You know, no weird stuff. I separated it all. I didn't get them all together. It was just, just I just, you know, mm-hmm. was, like I said, a womanizer. And I was always out, and we would go hit the strip clubs in Chicago and all the, you know, the nightlife and stuff. But back in the day, we all had pagers. You know, everybody had a pager back in the 90s. And when that pager went off, and somebody told us that there was some of the bad guys in a bar or, you know, a spot where we can get them, then we abruptly left that strip club or wherever we were and put that team together, and we went out on the hunt, as we called it. And, um, you know, it was, it was a survival mode that we were in because both sides were, the, the violence was escalating at such a crazy force that the murder started happening, the shootings on the highway, bombings of clubhouses. It, it, it became, looking back at it now and, and seeing and talking about it, it's kind of surreal, but living it back in the day, it was just an everyday thing to me always checked underneath our cars. I had a, I had a Corvette at the time and I, I had a, um, a mechanics, uh, thing with, uh, you get underneath the car and I had, um, glass on top of it so I could see up underneath the car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just, somebody didn't put a bomb under there. And <laughs> you would see me at the local grocery store, you know, I'd go pop into the store and stuff and I'd come out and then I'd, I'd, I'd get the mechanics thing out of the back and go underneath the tr- car and people be looking at me like, what's this guy doing, you know? Yeah, so you're scanning your car here, making sure there's no, no bombs. bombs. Yeah, shit. because they, they, yeah. they got good with the explosives, the other team, and uh, they, they blew up one of our guys in the truck and he died like two or three times on the way to the hospital. They brought him back. Long story short, he lived, you know, he blew his legs off and stuff. And uh... We've all seen the news. Mass shootings and terror attacks can happen anywhere and at any time. London, Paris, New York, Vegas. And after each tragedy, the politicians blame the very people who need protection the most, you and me. So we've teamed up with our new friends over at the United States Concealed Carry Association to give you a free copy of their complete mass shooting survival guide. Now, the USCCA provides self-defense, education, training, and legal protection to responsibly armed Americans like you and me. And now they want to give you a free copy of their new mass shooting survival guide. Just text the word survival to 87222 to get yours free right now. You're going to learn what we really know about mass shootings, how to survive an attack, proven strategies for stopping a shooter, and a whole lot more. It's packed with life-saving information that the anti-gun lobby doesn't want you to have. Plus, it comes with a bonus audiobook so you can listen whenever you want. You can claim yours in seconds here, and it's 100% free. And for a very limited time, you'll also get a bonus security checklist for your office, church, or school. Just text the word SURVIVAL to 87222. That's SURVIVAL to 87222. You know, my, 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 my crew was more of, you know, we were the aggressors as far as we were younger we were all training, we were fighting. There was no MMA in the day, but we were all mandatory that we would hit the bag and, and be limber and stuff because, you know, you can't, you're, you're no good in that environment if you can't take care of yourself and, and stuff like that. So we were always training. So when, when the bombs and stuff started, we were very lost at that. I, you know, I barely could put the, the battery in my pager. I didn't know nothing Shit. about none of that. So um, <laughs> I went and recruited myself a Navy SEAL. And, uh, you know, them guys are always good at that. And uh, that's when we started answering the, the bomb call with the bomb call. You know, we kind of like let them guys run how it was going to be at, the, at this crazy war. You know, if, if you know, there was always a thing like no houses. You can't get anybody at their house. It's an unwritten law, you know, and we, we all honored that. So, um, 
you know, the days were, were, were crazy. I never knew what the nights were going to bring or when I was going to get a call. And then on top of that, I traveled so much um, all around the country being the leader, you know, and being the youngest leader at that time out of all, of all the different states and all the, you know, where we're at, where the Hells Angels were. Me being 24, I was by far the youngest. I think the next closest president to me was like in his 30s. How did you get that position, <clears throat> becoming a leader? Is there some type of, you know, method to that, a structure, something that you have to pass, something that you have to uh, show these guys that, hey, I am a fucking badass and I could lead the way here, a rites of passage? Well, I think looking back at it now is I was always the type of guy, even known, even now in my businesses with the IFBB and, and Core Medical here, I was always the type of dude that could bring people together. I always made a bond amongst us all. And, um, you know, and, and, and I think with good leadership qualities is you have to be a guy that's willing to do what you're asking your crew to do. You can't sit on your pedestal and say, hey, guys, you know, we're going to go hunting these guys and wherever we find them, we're shooting them off their motorcycles and I'm sitting in a mansion with my feet up. So I never, you know, I learned that from my father. My father was very good about what all his friends, he loved his friends and he, he would do whatever for his friends. He, nothing was above him. So I kind of think that that's how I got in that position. <clears throat> Plus, when I was prospecting for the club at 19 years old, and going out with the fellas and stuff, I was already bodybuilding, so I was probably, at 5'10", I was probably 210, 15 pounds, already a, a pretty decent-sized guy. Gotcha. So I was physical. So when we were going out and going into these bars and stuff like that, I was the first one in, and whether I, what, we were using ball-peen hammers or our fists or sap gloves and stuff, <clears throat> I was on the scene all the time. So the members and the guys seen that. And the president that was there before me was was the president for about 15 years. So he, was, he was quite older, you know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and he just seen he just seen that in me. And he I remember him pulling me to the side and he's like, listen, I, I, I kind of been grooming you for this position without us even knowing it. You travel all around. Everybody knows you around the country and all the different chapters, you know, and, you know, you go there and, you know, you make friends with the guys and people see you and you're negotiating stuff with these other motorcycle clubs. It's time for you. So at the time, I was the sergeant of arms, Raf. I was our enforcer for the club. And, um, <clears throat> you know, at be, being 23 years old and having that title was kind of like a, a real, you know, kind of like a power thing because you're so young. And, you know, I'm the sergeant of arms for the Hells Angels in, in, a, in a chapter that's got a lot going on. And we were getting busy. It wasn't like we were, you know, planting flowers. We were taking care of business. Sure. And, um so one day I walked into the meeting. I was a little late, and uh, I had a call in. I was stuck by a train, and I walked into the meeting, and the, the president said, well, you know, we had a vote, and uh, Mel, you're not the, the sergeant of arms anymore. And I was kind of a little aggravated, and I said, what do you mean I'm not the sergeant of arms? How can you have a vote without me here? You know, I'm a member, too. My vote counts. And, and uh, as they see me getting a little riled up, he's like, hey, calm down, calm down. He's like, uh, we want you to be the president. And I was, like, thrown back, like, Wow. Jerry, you've been a, the president a long time, and you're ready to hand this torch over to me. It was so that was an honor. So, becoming that at that age <clears throat> was my tunnel vision, was my focus. I wanted to make the Hell's Angels in Chicago the biggest, the baddest at whatever we were doing. And unfortunately, in the time that I became that leader, it was no peace going on. So you know, you know, the, the Chicago police were on us, the organized crime task force were on us. And it wasn't until the, 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 the first bombing where the ATF and, and, and Janet Reno got involved. So she, back then, Janet Reno was our attorney general. <clears throat> and she did this thing. Um, they nicknamed it Operation Lucifer. And it was a full court press on me and the Angels in Chicago. And, uh, you know, back in the 90s, brother, you, you know, there was no cell phone pictures. There's no cameras or nothing. So we, we, nothing could, like today. Yeah, we could go in a bar. And we used to go in a bar and cut the phone lines on the outside and a crew would come through the back, a crew would come through the front. Everybody had a job to do. It was very militant. We didn't talk to each other on the way there. If there was six of us or seven of us in this van going to do this job, there was music playing, no talking. You know, I didn't you have were to focus like a focus. motherfucker. Yeah. Right? I didn't have to ask you, you know your job, Raf. You know, everybody knew what they had to do. Right. You know, the guys cut the lines. So I was one of the guys that was first through the doors and I had the you know, the ball-peen hammer or sap gloves or whatever weapon we were going to use. And then I was accompanied on my right-hand side by a guy with the gun. And in case the bad guy's up some guns in there, 
we're not going to be throwing ball peen hammers at them, of course, you know. (laughs) So we had a very militant structure, and we were so outmanned out there. They, you know, the outlaws had us, you know, like five, six to one as far as membership goes. You know, that was their that was their home turf. You know, it was home ground for them. So we were just trying to really, you know, stay afloat and stuff. But what kept us going was that young crew that we had. And we were all very aggressive and we were all good with our hands because we were all training and bodybuilding and fighting, you know, in, in, the, in, and, out of the, in and out of the gym. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I, that was my focus. And it, it, not to say that I wanted to do, you know, a bunch of, you know, everything criminal. But at the time, that's what was in front of us. And I had to do what we had to do. And um, I had so many great business opportunities back in the day because everybody in the city of Chicago was kind of taken to me. I was like that underground cult dude you know the leader of the hell's angels there he is he's 24 years old i'm on tv i'm going to the best restaurants i'm hanging out in the nightclubs downtown because i knew everybody it wasn't just i wasn't just the biker dude hanging out in the biker bars i was always in the 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 best of spots a place that i still eat to this day in chicago tavern on rush you know it's where all the celebrities eat The, the waiting list is two weeks you know well the guys there got to know me i'd call 10 minutes i'll be here in 10 minutes gotta get a table for seven of us and We'd all be up there eating in our vest, and you'd see actors and actresses and, sure. and politicians in the city, and they right. were there. So, you know, that grew for me. Like, my reputation from that grew much more than the actual, what I was doing, If so to say. My persona grew so much, you know. And then, um, like I said, once the violence got real crazy and the Janet Reno got involved and it was on the news all the time, as weird as it sounds, I became more of a celebrity figure in Chicago, you know, because, I, you know, kind of the same thing like, you know, the, the John Gotti thing, you know, everybody wanted to see John and be around John and stuff, you know, and yeah, but everybody knew on the flip side of the coin, he was a, just a real gangster, you know. Right. So there, 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 there was an attraction to who you were, <clears> even <throat> though that they know that what you stood for was violence at times. And, yes. and it was, but there was an attraction. Yeah. And in my mind back then, I used <clears throat> to rationalize it saying, well, we're not hurting anybody innocent. You know, we're not hurting the public. We're not doing home invasions and we're not, you know, doing other crimes like that. You know, we're just killing other motorcycle club guys and and I rationalized that that way you know and like I said I used to ask for forgiveness at nighttime but when the opportunities came up the next day I was full force on them I mean hence why I was in prison so much because I never took a back seat I wanted to be the guy going with my guys to do it you know so talk to me a little bit about violence aside okay what do you feel you gained positively from being that leader from the Hell's Angels, because I, I got to believe, even though yeah, we can mark all the all the negative things about it, but something positive must have come out out of there for you. Oh yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so you know, growing up in the family, I grew up with very very close. My father and mother kept the family tight. Sunday luncheons all the time. The Italians, and my dad was German and Irish, but my sisters, you know, very very close family knit to this day. Um, I seen that, and then being young and getting into the club, the brotherhood, you know, you, you are your brother's keeper. You know, um, you, you know, our, one of our brothers would go off and he had to go do, you know, a few years in a penitentiary, and we would take turns going over to his house and making sure his wife was okay and taking the garbage out. You know, that real brotherhood, that loyalty and respect for one another that was the found foundation of how the one percenters in the motorcycle club started back in the day. You know, it was all with a good cause. I remember when I first got in the club, the war was nowhere where it was. It was just really a bickering thing, you know, and if a couple see each other, we'd sock each other. It was like the schoolhouse playground, you know? And, and the brotherhood was so strong. And no matter where I went in the country, I couldn't pay for nothing. I'd go visit New York, I'd go visit California, and they would just you know, roll out the red carpet for me and the brother. And so I really learned that. And being a man of your word, when you say something, deliver on it. You know, I know in this generation, that's kind of, we lost that here, you know, I'm not picking on any generations, but we, that did really get lost. I mean, so many, I get let down in business so much now because people tell me things and I expect them to, to deliver on it and then they don't and they just think it's okay. Like, uh, no big deal. You know, so that whole brotherhood and that whole, your word is your word stuff and everything. It's what I really got out of that. You know, it was a, a big family thing. Hence the war started and it got crazy. And then anything that is ran 
or, you know, induced with so much criminal activity that we had to do to, to, to make ourselves stay afloat and we were making money. I, I couldn't have no nine to five job. I was needed constantly with the club. I was constantly going from different state to state and in meetings and stuff. So, okay, I couldn't punch no time clock. So I had to, I had to do illegal activity to make the best that I could. You know, and for me, it was easy because <clears throat> selling the meth and the cocaine and stuff like that and guns and stuff was easy for me because I didn't do any drugs. So uh, right. I kind of used to think it was very weak of people that did do drugs, you know. So I, I, I never was thrown off my square. You were never catching me out in a bar where I was intoxicated, where I couldn't defend myself or knew what was coming because, you know, the lifestyle we lived in. Um, so it, it, it definitely was, you know, I looking back on it and seeing, and like I said, we rationalized everything like, well, we're not hurting anybody. We're not selling drugs to kids in school playgrounds. We're selling drugs to other motorcycle clubs or, you know, moving them through. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't know where it goes, you know, but trying to rationalize it at the time and trying to think you're not a heathen or a goon and, and, and trying to uphold the club. So that's what I had to juggle. I tell people I, I, I had many faces that I had to put on. I had to put on the face to the public, you know, because the public always wanted to hear our side of the story because they were always reading the bad in the paper. So I became the spokesperson for us, and I had to put that face on to the public, like, okay, we're not that bad guys. We moved into this one neighborhood, and we cleaned the whole neighborhood up. I, I, I had a meeting with all the street gangs in this neighborhood. We called it a summit. And I told them, okay, guys, we don't care what you do. We don't care if you just get along or not. But on the block of our clubhouse, there's no more tagging garages, no more spray painting. If somebody spray paints a, a somebody's logo on there, I'm not just going to go after that logo because you guys might have did it to one, one gang, might have put another gang's on there. I'm going to call you all in. Let's keep this cool here. This is our home now. We're going to be here. So we, we bought all the paint for all the people that lived on this long block for the garages. We had a barbecue one day, and we all helped them paint their garages and get rid of the graffiti. You know, we did the toy drives. It, a lot of guys that are in these organizations are good-hearted guys, and they really are, and they're great with family, and they're great with brotherhood, and they're great with other people. Unfortunately, you know, when you're in any kind of, you know, crew like that or a street gang or a motorcycle club or whatever you want to call it, when it's, when it's based on some, you know, selling of drugs and territory and stuff, you're always going to get people that want to knock on the door and challenge you. And in that lifestyle... If you're not ready to protect what you have with violence, it's it's a wrap. Get out of it. How have you used your mindset now and your success nowadays? I mean, it, 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 you've, you're very successful. I mean, I could see you're a very disciplined dude. You're a very structured guy. Um, you speak very articulately. And more importantly, you know, it looks like you speak from the heart, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is why it, it attracted me to have you on this show because you're a raw dude. You're, you're up front. And and I love that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you had you had a, a, a time in your life where, where you fucked up, you paid your dues, and now you are kicking ass out there. And your message is very powerful. So tell me what you learned in the Hell's Angels as a leader. How have you applied some of that mindset to today's success? Well, I use the same drive that I had for the club that I do now for my life and my business. So kind of like. I did this, brother. When, it, when, when I came home in 07 after the racketeering, and I came home and uh, my father was still alive. He made it eight, month, eight months more. God rest his soul. He's a really bad diabetic. And I remember the years I was gone, I'd call home every night to talk to my mother and father, and they'd have some friends there pass the phone around. But I always was checking to make sure he was okay. My biggest fear when I was in prison, I, the, the hardest thing I prayed on was not me getting any time cut or me getting out. It was when I did come home to have my mother and father there. I did not want to lose one of them, of course. That would have just killed me because of the family knit we got. So um, so I used that drive to do what I'm doing. And, 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 and I kind of did, I kind of took my life and went in the total opposite direction. I don't ride a motorcycle. <clears throat> I'm, I'm done with all the, the women. I got married in 2011. Um, she's probably gonna kill me 2011 or 12, but anyways. Uh, um, so I, I just said to, to myself, you, you did such a good job when you were in that lifestyle to be the person in that lifestyle. Like I said, they called me the poster child for it. 
And I wanted to do that, that exact same thing in life when it came to my business and it came to my family and spending time and being that guy. So I knew that I had to cut so much stuff out. <clears throat> People said, Mel, you don't miss riding? No, I don't miss riding because I contribute riding with the club. So, you know, when I was riding, when we were on our motorcycles and going on runs and stuff, you know, we had chase vehicles next to us that were packed out with weapons. I mean, we were guys in cars going on the overpasses first because, you know, we did a stunt where we shot some dudes from an overpass. So we, we, we were very militant, you know. So riding wasn't enjoyable to me where, I, like, I got on the bike with, you know, with you next to me, bro, and we're, like, seeing the sights and having some fun. It was always a constant, like, right, who's right, around. Right. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't hard for me to, to put the bike away. Um, the hardest thing for me to do was, honestly, be, you know, until I met my wife in 09, <clears throat> was to put the, the women down. You know, I couldn't do it. I was just so, you know, if I could put a name tag on me, you know, like an AA and be like, hey, I'm Mel, I'm addicted to, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I, hey, I'm Mel, I'm, a, I'm a, a womanizer, you know, and that's how I was. And so that was very hard for me to put down. And then the violence, the violence was inbred in me because of all the years that we had to do it. I, I we, we had to go from being nice guys that were out in a bar having some drinks and all of a sudden the bad guys or somebody screws up and walks in and you had to turn violent in one second. So that is what I struggle. And I always say when I speak at retreats and in schools and everything, I always say the devil knows exactly where to get you at. He's not going to come to a guy like me and throw some heroin out on a table or some cocaine. That's not the temptation. Alcohol to me, he knows. But what he's going to do is he's going to throw some situations in my face where it's going to make my temper try to get hot or he's going to throw a bunch of, you know, bikini women in front of me and see what I'm doing with it. <clears throat> so for me, how I tell everybody now, I have to stay in prayer multiple, multiple times through the day, 10, 12, 15 times. And I don't mean 15 minute prayers. I mean where I stop and say, thank you, Lord. I just noticed this situation. Thank you for bringing me out of it. Or if there's a situation where I'm on the phone and, and somebody's aggravating me in business and they tell me F you and I want to go old school on them and stuff like that. I got to, you know, get my composure and get in a little prayer real quick because he brings me from there. So I think what I, I did is I took that mindset that I had and I did it in life, period. Second chance. That's, that's you know, the moniker that I always say um, it, with my family. My daughter's 32. I have two grandbabies with her. They're, you know, they're coming in from Chicago this Wednesday. I spend as much time as I can with my family and then the two big businesses that I, that I run. So um, that discipline from the gym that I started, and I still have that di discipline, you know, that, that, that being in the gym every day and training. And like you said, I'm structured and stuff. I took that nowadays and I just do that in business. And that, that's where I think made me, you know, find that, that peace and stuff. So talk to me a little <clears> bit about <throat> your businesses and how did you, I mean, how did you get from, you know, after jail, after you did your prison time, you stepped out. What, when did you, what time did you get out? Well, <clears throat> you got it in what, 07, 09? Um, March, May of 2007. All right, so you got out in 2007. From that point on, <clears throat> 2007 to today. I mean, you've developed <clears throat> some very strong businesses, mm -hmm. uh, a very strong social media presence. Um, you have a very solid message. I mean, how did you get to where you are today from the time that you left prison? So when I came home and, and, and I started bodybuilding again, I, I was going to, you know, compete again as, you know, as a professional bodybuilder. And I did one more time. But I was already 39 or 40 years old when I came home, or 39. And, um you know, for sports and using your body, it's kind of, you know, it's about right there, you know, at the time. And I knew I didn't want to keep, you know, abusing myself with the heavy weights and all the hormones and stuff <clears throat> and eating, you know, seven meals a day and two pounds of red meat. So I switched over and I said, let me concentrate on some businesses. I had a nightclub business that I was in in downtown Chicago. I stayed in that ad from 2007 until 2011 when I couldn't, <clears throat> I couldn't physically be at my nightclub till five o'clock in the morning. No more. I was getting tired. It was draining me. I just told my wife, you know, I said to Melissa, I said, I just, I just can't do this lifestyle no more. But in the meantime, I became very, <coughs> excuse me, guys, <coughs> very close with them. A guy by the name of Jim Mannion, who owns the IFBB NPC, the Bodybuilding Federation, and um, me and him just, you know, developed a friendship. You know, he's like a mentor to me. And he, he showed me the, 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 the behind the scenes and the running the shows and the promotions and stuff. And when I moved to Florida in 2014, 
He called me up and he said, Mel, you're in a good spot there in Florida. The NPC, you know, could, could use a little help down there. And I said, I'm your guy, Jim. And uh, I came down here and uh, now I have three successful shows, one in Naples, two over here in Lauderdale. Um, we did one last year in Chicago with a big expo, me and a, a gentleman by the name of Branch Warren. So that just, you know, came on slowly and I just rose to the ranks over there where I became, you know, um, a, a helper for Jim, one of the guys that's right by his side running, running the uh, IFBB and the NPC around the country, the Olympias and the Arnolds and stuff like that, and promoting my own shows. And Core Medical, I, I merged with last year, uh, right about this time, February. And um, it was a good fit for me because I know the hormone game all my life from, you know, taking the testosterones and everything like that, bodybuilding. And I knew it to a T where, where, where our top doctors and these endocrinologists that we work with here, they said, man, Mel, you missed your calling. You know the body. And I said, yeah, why research that? I just wasn't that kid that was sticking a syringe in me and I didn't know what it was doing. I wanted to know what I was doing to myself. Hence, you know, you, you put some testosterone in you, you gotta watch your estrogen level. Everything has a balance, so I learned all that. So merging with, uh, with Sid Gordon, the owner of Core Medical, and this, and this team here that we're sitting here now with is, was, was like a no-brainer for me, you know? And um, through my social media presence, the traveling that I do in the bodybuilding industry, and all the people I get to see, let's face it, m most men and women, it doesn't matter what age you are now, his hormone levels are pretty screwed up because of all the hormones we put in the food now. We didn't see this back in my, in mine in your day. When we were youngsters, you, 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 would, you didn't even hear about low testosterone nothing, until a guy was like right yep. in the 40s. Yep. But hence now that all the food has tons of estrogen in it, it's killing all the men's hormones, their testosterone, raising their estrogen level. It's raising the estrogen level on the women so bad, hence we see 10, 11, 12-year-old children, I call them at that age, developed right, with, right. with boobs and rear ends. It's just, it's just insane. <clears throat> but when they get older from all them hormones that they've been eating in the food and stuff, if they don't get a balance in it when they're younger, they're going to have osteoporosis and they're just going to have a hard time these women by the time they're in their 30s and 40s because they're 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 getting such a huge amount of hormones so <clears throat> hooking up with core was like like i say it's like two birds in one stone i'm traveling in the bodybuilding industry all around the country i probably was gone 35 to you know 35 weekends this this past year at, at shows and stuff and running them and doing everything so i get to see the people that come up to me and they said mel we're tired. We don't feel good. No sex drive. We're, we're, we're fatigued and everything. And I said, okay, guys, let me get you with a patient coordinator and get you some blood work done. We test everything from the hor every hormone in the body and everything that you would see from a normal doctor, your CBC, cholesterols, liver enzyme, kidneys, glucose, everything you'd see. But the, the, the problem is, and which great for our companies, is the normal doctors will not test your hormones because there's no money in it for them. So you know, hormones are very cheap. It's not expensive at all. So unfortunately for these doctors in big pharma, they want to push the drugs like the statins and the opiates because that's where the money is for them. So the hormones is not, which is great for the hormone replacement companies because we test everything and we address what's not correct, you know? Awesome. So um, so it's, it's, it's great for me because in my travels of working for the shows, I'm also getting people coming up to me left and right that I take the time to talk to this about. And then the next thing you know, they're calling me up and they're getting with a patient coordinator and a doctor and they're getting their lives back. I can't tell you how many men, middle-aged men like us, you know, and it goes to young kids too, but middle-aged men who call me up after getting on the hormone replacement and they say, Mel, like, thanks brother. You like gave us our life back where I can work more hours at work. My wife's happy, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, right, I'm right. just so much, you know, and I got on a FaceTime uh, probably sometime last year with, with an individual I met just from social media, but I give everybody my number because this is too much to text to somebody who like the hormones. Sure, You really got to give them the yeah. rundown, you know. And um, so he called me up. It was like after like three weeks of his protocol and his testosterone was up, estrogen was back in place, you know. You got two hormones in the testicles, FSH and LH, and that them were all, you know, working good from the medicine. So he said, Mel, he goes, he FaceTimed me and I answered the phone. I had a little rapport with him. And uh, he said, hey, I want to introduce you to my wife. And he shows me his wife and she's like, hey, my name's Karen. I'm like, hey, how you doing? She's like, Mel, thank you so much. She's like, he's like a new man. I go, well, 
it wasn't his fault. His hormone levels were so screwed up. Right, it wasn't you or up. nothing. Yeah, yeah. And she says, um, she goes, hey, we got it. We got a nickname for you around the house. And I said, oh, this ought to be good. And she goes, we, we call you the Dick Doctor. And I started laughing. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm glad you got him back. I said, you know, she goes, God, she goes, we literally, she goes, not here in the business. She goes, but it's been well over a year since we've been together because he had no drive. And I'm like, right, he came in with a testosterone level of 100 and 325 to 1,000 is the range. And if you're our age, care if you're 49 you're active you're still in you're still training clients and fighting and being active and running around i see you with your family me too i'm constantly go, ripping and running if your hormones are tanked it's like having an anvil you know to, yeah. st strapped to your leg you know i mean you're just dragging so it's a great reward for me to be in this business because it's it's it sells itself you know you're not selling snake oil it's you know you're giving them the hormones that they need to get in their body that their that their conventional doctors wouldn't deal with because it's a pain in the rear end for them, and I make so many new friends and, and become lifelong friends because they remember like, hey Mel, we seen Mel's message and this helped us, and you know, so it's just a great it's just a great plus that I get. It's like they hold hands. The bodybuilding federation that I run in Core Medical, which you know, it's two and one, you know. Awesome, awesome. So talk to me a little bit about what your worst experience has been in life. I mean, talk to me about when you were just down and out, the most horrible, fucked up experience that you have ever been. Um, besides losing my dad, you know, I had eight months with him when I came home. And, you know, like I said, that was my best friend. He was my my mentor. And, and, and not in the, you know, as I said, my family was very, very straight. My dad worked my dad forged his brother's gifts or his brother's birth certificate to get into the Korean War at 16. Oh, damn. At 16 years old, he well, went to the Korean War because his dad was a tyrant and he was just a rough guy beating him up and stuff like that. I come from a lot of, I have, I have a lot of uncles. And uh, so my dad was one of the most hardest working dudes that you could think of. My mom just, just, just supported the family. Hence why I went the other way. It's so weird because, you know, my sisters were the followed in the family suit. But um, so losing him was rough because he was the one that showed me the goodness of having a good heart. And people say, Mel, even back in the day, you had a good heart. I always did. I was always for the underdog. If I seen somebody getting bullied, I would step in. If I seen, you know, I, if I seen, if I was out in a bar with the crew and I seen some dude, you know, putting his hands on a woman, I didn't care. I stepped right in. I, I, I always had them good family traits that my father, that I give him all the credit in the world, was showed me. And I took them traits, of course, into the club, into the Hells Angels, and I became a good brother to everybody, to where I put myself last. And I do that to this day. You know, Sid's over here, you know, the owner over here, he says all the time, he's like, you're so selfless to yourself. You put everybody else first. And, and I do. And sometimes it hurts me in, a little bit in, in the family because I get ripping and running on the phone at 8, 9 o'clock in the morning time, and I might be on business calls until 2, 3 in the afternoon. Then I want to go train, and sometimes it's hard when my wife will be out, and I'll see a, a call come in, and it's from a patient or something with core or the IFBB, and I take it, Raf. You know, I, I try not to leave anybody hang, which sometimes hurts my own family, you know, because, you know, my wife's like, can we just put the phone oh, I, down? I hear, I hear you. <laughs> you know? I hear you, Mel. Loud and clear on that, man. It's a, it's tough, a tough balance to achieve, no it's doubt. It's a tough balance. And then with my social media being crazy, you know, I run my own social media. I mean, I have a... a a girl here by the name of Kaylin that helps me out a lot with it, with posting and stuff. But when it comes to private messages and answering, you know, you're getting me. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't think I could do that if, if, you know, if I had like the rocks, you know, 102 million or something like that. You couldn't do that. But with me having 60,000 followers on Instagram and getting messages, I go over them. And especially if there's something to do with business. Now, I, I don't, I don't answer the message about some young kid that's wanting to be the young, inspiring Mel Chancey and he wants to go be a goon and he wants to talk about taking steroids and being a one percenter. I just don't get into that. I can't get right, into right, that. Right, right. But I sure do answer everybody that tells me that I'm an inspiration for him and, you know, how did I do it? I have, Raf, I have so many guys from different motorcycle clubs around the world that are either left their club or trying to leave their club <clears throat> and they just didn't know how to do it. And they reach out to me, and they said, "Man, everybody knows who, who know who you, who you were. You were the poster child for what you did, and to see the change that you made, <clears throat> how? Tell me how." 
And that's what I tell them, you know. Uh, and it's weird because, you know, uh, the good Lord didn't obviously want me to be a preacher because if he did, I would have been a Christian since I've been five, six, seven years old, eight years old. My belief is <clears throat> he allowed me to walk through that life that I did walk through, hence right. unharmed. Because, listen, I was by far not the baddest dude in, in, in the Hells Angels. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some bad, bad cats. And I mean physically, violently, and whatever. And same with the other sides of all the other clubs. <clears throat> I wasn't the, the, the baddest dude. Um, but he kept me unharmed in some very violent situations where, you know, I got tombstones on my arms from some of the brothers that got killed. I have some of the brothers that are never coming home from federal prison with life sentences. And, you know, we say I was the poster child, and here I am today, by the grace of the Lord. So I tell everybody that. I'm like, listen, uh, you know, he didn't do this to me young. I, I think he allowed me to walk through some scary, tough spots, you know, walking through hell, and kept me safe for the later date of my testimony to people, you know, and you know, like you said, I, I, I'm just real about everything, you know, and I, I, if, if, if he didn't have his hand on me, as weird as it is to say, in the, in the violence that was going on and the criminal activity I was involved in, if he did not have his hand on me, I wouldn't be here because they would have got me. You know, the, the bad guys were trying to put my head on a, on, a, on a pedestal somewhere and the government was trying to give me 100 years and pump me sunlight. You know what I mean? They were trying to put me so far away and they couldn't, you know, for years they couldn't get me. So that's my belief and that's how I tell these guys. And until you get to that spot where you can really understand that there is a higher power in, in, in Jesus Christ is not just a fictional book or a genie you rub in a bottle when you're in trouble. Oh, okay, I mean, I've seen a million people come to prison and get very, very into their faith. I mean, Bible study every day, the whole nine yards. And then they go home from prison and they just threw that whole chapter of their life out. And I made a commitment to the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm not going to be that dude. I know I've been a hypocrite all my life, but I'm making a stand here. I'm going to continue to pray to you and let you guide me. Now, there'd be some, since I've been home in, in 07, there's some nights I forget to pray, maybe because I had a couple cocktails with some friends and I just passed out or whatever. But, Raph, I'll tell you, I, I, I stay structured in it. And I find myself in prayer, like I said, a dozen or more times. If any situation, if I'm out at these after parties, which I have to attend after the, the bodybuilding shows, if people are bringing me in to be the guest at the show and, and I'm making an appearances and stuff, I go to the after dinners with them. You know, they're the host, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm making my appearance and stuff. I'll go to a nightclub and have a drink or two. But if there's anything that I feel that I can't handle. If there's two or three hot chicks right there and they're all over me because they're like, oh, there's Mel, I, I, I'm, I'm bowing my head and I'm saying, okay, Lord, I see the temptation in front of me. Get me through this. Don't let me stumble right here, man. I can't do it. So for me, I think in my head like this, this is what I always tell myself. If I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna start running around on my wife, if I'm gonna dip my toe in the pool, I might as well just dive in again because I can't do one of them because they all, to me, in my mind, connect. The women, the violence, that one percenter lifestyle, that fast money. So if I was to screw up and start, you know, having affairs or running around on Melissa, everything is coming right behind it. And that would be my downfall because I, I, everything was coming. Yeah, you're opening the door. Opening sure. the door. Hence why in 2014 I said it's time for me to leave Chicago, which was so hard, brother, because... I was a fixture there for, you know, 44 years. I've been out here for four years. 44 years. Um, anything I wanted, 2 o'clock in the morning, I could make a call and have anything I wanted. 4 o'clock, I could be out eating sushi. Whatever I wanted was there for the taking for me. And I still have them deep roots with them people, with, with people. And, and a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people I know are still involved in that crazy lifestyle. Not knocking them. Listen, if it works for him, I'm, I'm not the judge of nothing. But I couldn't be around it because I, I would have guys come to my nightclub and say, Mel, listen, you know, um, we just scored 100 keys of cocaine and, you know, I, I can get them to you for 20 grand and they're going for 40. And I'm like, fellas, come on, man. Don't even bring that to me, please. That's the temptation coming right to me. Because the old me way of thinking, I would have snatched that whole load up and just went and made a million bucks. So... I finally said to my wife in 2014, 
I can't take the cold no more. You're not happy with the cold being a Floridian. Let's buy a house in Florida and, and, and let's just start a new, a new chapter. I'm ready. You know, and I still love the people from Chicago. When I go back to town, I'm going in February for my 50th. I'll still go downtown. I'll see everybody. I still know a lot of the mobster guys. I still go say hello to them and, you know, have a glass of wine with them guys. I pay my respects to them and stuff because I'm not judging how anybody's living life. You know, as you sure. know, it's, sure. it's just not for us to judge. Mm-hmm. I can't walk hand in hand in that. And, and I know myself. So, you know, I tell people when I talk, <clears throat> you got to look in the mirror and you have to be real with yourself. And once you're real with yourself and you're not bullshitting yourself, you're going to be an all around better person if, 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 if that's the way you choose to be. Like, you know, last February, I had a stent. I had a 75% blockage in one of the main heart arteries, not a symptom. I just went in for some mutual, you know, um, preventive maintenance. And everybody was like, God, Mel, you know, you trained all your life, all this cardio and stuff. I'm like, right, but I know it ran in my family, number one, on, on both sides. Number two, how about all the hormones? How about all the red meat that I was eating to be 290 pounds and the lifestyle I lived, you know, with all the food and, and the hormones? And then add eight years in a prison cell eating ramen noodles and honey buns. You know, you got to look back and say, I contributed it to this too. Yeah, hence, yeah, I probably would have got it from the hereditariness, but I sped it up. My mom wasn't cracked open until she was in her 80s, and my dad was in his 70s. I'm 49, got the stent. So once, you, once everybody can really be a realist with themselves and see where your rights or wrongs are at and be honest about it, it just makes you that much more of a better person, which keeps a guy like me grounded. Because if I wasn't real, then I could say, ah, you know what, <clears throat> what's it going to hurt that I'm hooked up with this chick for a weekend? Well, that just opens up, like I said, Pandora's box for a guy like myself. And, and I'm sure a guy like a lot of people that are out there listening, you know, you, gotta, you just got to find out what's no good in your life and what is and concentrate on the good, especially in these days, Ralph, because everybody's so negative, you know. And, and, and you know, like you said, like I, I'm friends, as you see on my social media, with so many police officers. It's just people were amazed at who I was. But... I never had a problem with law enforcement. I'm all 100%. Here at CORE, we do a military veterans project. The, the police, we give them a discount. No police in this world, guys. The world would be way, way worse than it is now. That was never our enemies, the police. We had problems with the other motorcycle clubs, and you know the police had a job to do to protect the public. How about them guys? They put up, the, the outlaws put 100 pounds of C4 in 1994 in front of our clubhouse, in the back, in the trunk of a car. Thank the Lord, on, a, on the, one of the busiest streets in Chicago, Grand Avenue, at five o'clock on a Wednesday night, not one person got hurt because that that C4 blew down and they didn't have it. They didn't have it shape charged. And you know, once that started, that's when Janarino and the ATF came in with the full court press. And how could you blame them? That could have wiped out. A, a bus going by that just, we, you know, we had video cameras. We watched a bus, a CTA bus full of innocent people go by two and a half minutes before that happened. If that blast would have went off and that bus was going by that at the same time, oh God, yeah. everybody would have been dead on that bus. No, no doubt. So, you know, when it comes to me with law enforcement, people say, God, you know everybody, you know Jay Dobbins, you know, because ne- that was never an issue with us. We were good. I knew what they were doing. They were outside. They were filming us. I used to give them the wave. Hey guys, how you doing? We know they had a job to do and we had a job to do. And that's why today I'm so everybody's like, God, you know, everywhere you go, you know, all the police and stuff. I'm like, right. Cause that, that was, we were always friendly with them. And listen, they didn't like what we were doing and you know, but it was never personal, you know, of course not. Yeah. What is your message that you want to leave people off with? Um, Whew, that's a good question. I mean, in in this day and age and how I see things going and how I how I live my life and stuff, I, I, I try to bring a little bit of positivity to anybody that I cross through the day. It's really weird and stuff because, you know, I'm, I'm, I, my wife being with me for 10 years, it sees how positive I am and, and it's rubbing off on her. But it's hard, though, because, <clears throat> you know, we'll be taking a walk or we'll be by the water up there where we live. You know, we live right on the, on the golf side. And, uh, you know, I'll pass a couple up and we'll say, hey, good evening. And they won't even wink at us. They'll just turn away and look. And, you know, and, and, and people are scorned in this world nowadays with everything that's going on. But 
I always try to leave people with a little peace. I don't care if they say hello back to me or not. If I'm passing somebody up on the sidewalk, I say hello. I'm from the old school days where everybody did that back. Hey, good morning, good morning, you know. Every morning I walk in my neighborhood. You know, my whole neighborhood knows me. So, you know, I'm at 7 o'clock, and where I live in Florida, it's a kind of quiet coast. It's all older people. They're already up with their garages open. You know, they get up at 530. And everybody's like, Mel, you want a coffee? And I said, no, I'm good. Thank you. You know, and I, I got the, all the neighborhood around where I live that know me, and it's great. You know, they stop by the house, see my dogs. In a perfect world for me, Ralph, that's what it would be like, like the peace and the love that, like, how Christ left us. I mean, one of the last things he said to his disciples, it was, I'm leaving you my peace. Go give it. And, you know, of course, the world turned into the world, and, and, and that's not a thing no more. The, the, the peace, the brotherhood, the loyalty, I, it's just not happening. I see families that are torn apart because a brother slept with the brother's wife, and you know you know the, the shit that's going on now. So I always... The, the, I always try to leave somebody on a positive note all the time, even when I have a fallout with somebody. And it happens with me. I have, I have some bad people that I have to deal with where I have to get on the phone and say, get old school and t- say, hey, motherfucker, I, and, get, and get in their ass. And then when I'm done and I blow off that steam for about 10 minutes and I finally hung up on them, you know, and they're scared because they know my past and they see physically I'm a big guy and they know that I was all about violence, I'm over it. And I call them back up and I say, listen, I want to throw the first apology out. I'm sorry. But it, you, not that it's right or wrong, but I tell them, you struck first. You, you got disrespectful with me on the phone and you brought that out of me. I don't, it's not right that you did it, but let's start over, brother. It's not, it's Nobody slept with each other's life. We didn't steal money. It's a business conversation. Let's start fresh. So I always try to be an example of good faith to everybody, you know. So I think if that's the message I could get out, I think if everybody passed along a little good cheer and some peace and love to the fellow person they're walking past or somebody that they just had a minor fallout with and they just said, you know what, it's not worth it. Life's too short. That would be a great message. That's awesome. Very, very powerful. Hey, how can our listeners follow you on social media? What's your ID, your social media ID? Um, so the IG one is melchancy316. Um, my Facebook is obviously melchancy. There's two of them, a business one, and then, you know, the the regular one that they only give you 5,000 followers on, the regular one, you know. So I've already been stopped there. So we started a business one so everybody could follow and I can get messages from people that ain't you know, friends on the original one. Um, um, and then, uh, any, like I said, anybody that contacts me that wants to know anything about, the, you know, the bodybuilding industry, competing, young competitors that are, you know, wanting to be, you know, in Mel Chansey's the bodybuilding or young girls that are looking to get in the bikinis part of the sport or anything to do with core medical, my phone and doors are always open. You know, I'm always never have not enough time to answer questions for people that hit me up. And, and, especially when it comes to people struggling. So I help a lot of people out. And, and, and it makes me, it's an honor for me to say that, that I have a lot of people that are struggling. I have a girl that, that I go back and forth with and never met her in person, just from social media. And she struggles in her faith in the Lord and she struggles with suicide. And she hit me up and I remember telling her, here's my phone number. Like I can't, there's no texting, you have to call me, please call me. And she called me. And we're, we're probably about a year and a half into the, the friendship on the phone and talk. And she sees the positive messages I put out. And I text her out of the blue and say, I'm praying for you. And she does the same to me. And I don't know if I'll ever meet her in life. I don't know if that'll ever happen, you know, because she's, she's kind of a recluse. She, she, gets, she gets depressed and she stays in the house. But the Lord knows, man, when to put her on my heart and vice versa. And she prays for me through some things. She'll pop up out of the blue and she's like, you were on my heart and, and I've been praying for you and it's, I'm going through a struggling time. So it's, it's just amazing how, you know, the Lord puts people in your life at the right times, you know. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And, and, and for you to be able to be accepting of it and for you to be able to, to really look at it and say, man, the time is now and to step up. And like you said, you know, not only just say, okay, well, the time is now, but actually to take that action mm-hmm. and to, to be who you are today and, and to stand behind your message. I mean, very powerful stuff right there, Mel. And 
first of all, I want to say thank you for your time, for being thank on. You, brother. Um, I'm gonna for our listeners. I'm gonna put a link on on the on our web page uh, with a banner and all that good stuff, like with all the show notes, like I normally do. And um, from there, we'll link out. You follow this guy. Very powerful messages across the board. Um, he's a legit dude. Um, very raw to the point. And I'm, I'm honored to have met you, man. Thank you, bro. Me too. It's an honor for me. And anytime you need me at one of your events for speaking, I'm down, brother. I, I love I love doing that. And I, I've been doing that since I've been home. I speak at, I'm going in February, uh, I think it's 10th or 11th, um, up in Orlando, and I'm speaking at a men's retreat. And uh, the people that brought me in to speak, you know, I told them, you don't have to put me up in a hotel. It's only two hours from my house. You're going to feed me lunch. That's great. I'm good. You don't, you don't owe me nothing. I'm doing this. I want to do this. And she said, okay. She goes, we got you speaking on, on leadership. And I said, oh, that's pretty cool. I said, because it really made me think about what I was going to say about leadership because I never considered myself to be an actual, you know, leader. But I've seen how I've been in leadership positions all my life and the traits that it took to do that. And that, like I said earlier, that one trait is loving the people that you're with and making sure your team or wherever you're leading is taken care of and you're they're not doing anything you wouldn't so it made me reflect on it so i'm doing that in february so i that's I get, awesome i get stoked so whenever you need me brother i'm here awesome, for you man thank you very much and for listeners again we'll put that on our show notes all the good stuff continue following man of war m-a-n-w-a-r-r on instagram and of course uh remember that every tuesday we bring you some very very solid interviews here across the board this show um, as you're hearing it today will be our first release from Christmas. So um, hope you enjoyed it. And certainly, my brother, hope to have you back soon, man. Awesome, bro. And all the listeners out there, God bless. Spread that peace and love, man. We definitely need it in, this, in these days. Amen, brother. Amen. There you have it. What a powerful conversation with Mel Chancy. I mean, this story, uh, if you didn't get anything out of it, I don't know, your head's up your ass because bottom line is that you look at this and you start saying, this guy was in the darkest of hells and was able to overcome that and make a huge transformation in his life. And here he is today, a man of God, a man that empowers others by the way he lives. And this guy in my book is a warrior. He paid his dues and here he is um, today um, setting examples for others. All right, my brothers, make sure that you stop by wardevacademy.com forward slash crucible and put in your application, man, if you are that type of man, if you're a leader, if you're a man that wants to push himself beyond his self-imposed limit, and more importantly, if you want to be able to step up and be a part of a very powerful brotherhood. All right, until next time, your life may be challenging and full of dangers, but never retreat. Your last battle may be your greatest victory.